This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Synthetic biology is a tool, just like a hammer. Uh, you can use it for good or you can use it for nefarious purpose. If you understand biology, if you understand this network of small molecules and genes and environmental uh, influences, then you can disrupt that, uh, not only for good, but perhaps for bad. What we're trying to do here is just to call attention to this tool and to bring this to the attention of, of developing leaders, say, look, you have to take this into account when developing plans uh, for security and for operations. Uh, we have to understand what might happen out there if technology falls into the, uh, into the wrong hands of, of someone who is trying to do harm to others. What is the risk here? What is the threat? What we're concerned about is the uh, production of uh, either small molecules of, or gene products that perhaps uh, could be uh, used in a way that is a negative influence on uh, on someone's health. And we're talking about a bioweapon here, right? We are talking about bioweapons. And so, yeah, yeah. again, whether you talk about a material or something that is, happens to be infectious, yeah, that's just different levels of threat. There are no boundaries when it comes to the information. There are no boundaries when it comes to science. And there's certainly no boundaries when it comes to scientific expertise and interest. Because there is such an enormous uh, level of interest coming out of Asia, and particularly China. It's something to consider uh, when, when thinking about where synthetic biology could go, not only for the good, but potentially for the bad. Dr. Kenneth Wickheiser is the Associate Dean for Research and a Professor of Biochemistry at the United States Military Academy at West Point. He was a graduate of West Point, and he served in the United States Army. Dr. Wickheiser earned his PhD in molecular biophysics and biochemistry from Yale University. I just sat down with Ken to talk about a recent article he co-authored on the national security risks associated with synthetic biology. We'll be right back with that discussion. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. 
Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ken, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. Michael, thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate it, and uh, I'm uh, I'm honored to be here. Ken, I should let you know that our discussion will be part of a series of episodes that we're doing between now and the inauguration on the key national security issues facing the United States. And I'll let our listeners know right up front that this this one is going to be uh, a bit scary. So, Ken, you and some colleagues wrote a paper published in August that caught my attention. It was published by the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, which is, I think, probably the best terrorism, counterterrorism think tank in the world. Your piece was titled Engineered Pathogens and Unnatural Biological Weapons, the future threat of synthetic biology, which is what I really want to dig into today with you. But before we do that, I wanted to give you an opportunity to mention the other authors of the piece because there were quite a few and it really looked to me like a team effort and I wanted to give you a chance to acknowledge them. Absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for allowing me that opportunity. And yes, uh, absolutely. This was a uh, team effort. Uh, and one of the great things about uh, West Point is that we have a uh, a really great combination of both uh, active duty military and uh, government civilian uh, faculty and staff here uh, in our effort to uh, help develop the next generation of uh, of uh, army leaders. And so the uh, my colleagues on this particular paper um, include um, Colonel John Burpo, who has a PhD uh, from MIT in in, uh, in bioengineering. Um, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Washington, who has a PhD in microbiology from uh, the Uniform Services University of Health Sciences. Dr. Kevin O'Donovan, um, who is a, uh, a Title X government civilian, and he's the Deputy Director of the Life Science Program here at West Point. His PhD is in neuroscience from uh, Johns Hopkins University. Um, and then uh, we also have a, uh, a returning active military uh, officer, um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, who is who is now getting his PhD at uh, at Boston University, and so what we have here is a group of people who are not only subject matter experts, but they're they're people who have operational experience, and that's whether operational experience in the military, um, as uh, you know uh, you know deployed in the deployed environment in the garrison environment, uh, or in um, in uh, both uh, government and uh, civilian academic labs, uh, you know across the uh, United States. And so we really took kind of a holistic uh, of, a view of this, but really couched it in the in the context of of you know what do our cadets, what do these graduating seniors who are going to go out into the military and lead our uh, brothers and sisters in in the army, what do they really need mm-hmm. to know about this technology? And again, the the point here was really not to uh, not to be scared, but to be prepared and just to kind of understand right. the uh, from a holistic standpoint, kind of where synthetic biology is, where it could go, and what do we need to be concerned about? So, Ken, maybe the place to start is by asking, what is synthetic biology? So that's a great question because it kind of depends on who you ask. Uh, and I think the most broad interpretation of what synthetic biology is, it's the process of engineering 
um, you know, natural genetic systems. And by that, what I mean in, in terms of engineering is taking what nature has provided us and optimizing it, co-opting it, repurposing it, making it more efficient, making it for a more cost effective uh, for either, uh, you know, for, in, in large part for good purposes to make new and novel biomaterials, uh, to make new and novel uh, pharmaceuticals, to make existing pharmaceuticals cheaper, um, you know, more abundant, more available uh, for the population. Um, so synthetic biology has been around for a long time. It's really increased in its prevalence and its significance um, since what we would term the genomic age, since we understood the nature, uh, started understanding really the nature of DNA and being able to catalog the structure of DNA and how genomes in particular are organized, uh, the controlling components, the parts that make proteins, the parts that uh, serve as, uh, as um, uh, stoplights, or uh, speed bumps um, along the way. And can you explain the concept of modularity and why that's important to synthetic biology? I, I, I found that fascinating in your piece. Absolutely. So, uh, and, and this goes to, uh, you know, some, some larger uh, organizations, uh, competitions and efforts out there uh, where people uh, say a lay person, or, or if you're a, if you're a, say an engineer, say an electrical engineer, uh, you know, I think most people understand um, if you take a look at an electronic circuit, there's, there's parts there that go into this electronic circuit. And you have a resistor here that gets, uh, that gets uh, set aside, a, a capacitor over there. And you can construct very complicated um, machinery uh, with some very simplistic parts. And so if you take that viewpoint of how perhaps a genome is, is uh, organized, you, you understand then you have this long strand of DNA and embedded within that DNA are the instructions for certain proteins. Some proteins are going to be turned on all the time. Some proteins are going to be turned on only some of the time. And sometimes there's an age or development uh, aspect to it. Um, so if in terms of modularity, what we're really kind of focused on is being able to lift that one segment of uh, DNA out of one particular organism and place it in a completely different novel context, in a completely different organism, and yet have it work. And perhaps not in the way that nature intended, but in the way that you, as the bioengineer, intends that to uh, function. So that's really what we talk about when we, when we, when we uh, use the term modularity, is that, is that kind of drag and drop, cut and paste, or lift and shift uh, kind of uh, mentality when you think about uh, engineering uh, DNA and, and engineering genomes for that matter. So Ken, you talked about the good uses that synthetic biology can do for mankind. Your, your piece was about a potentially bad use, right? And I'd love for you to talk about that from sort of the, the 50,000 foot level. Absolutely. Um, look, synthetic biology is a tool, just like a hammer. Uh, you can use it for good or you can use it for nefarious purpose. And so uh, yes, we are uh, typically in, in, uh, in uh, academia focused on the good. That's, the, that's kind of the whole point of going through a, a PhD program, learning about how to uh, you know, better mankind in, in terms of, again, novel materials, novel pharmaceuticals, understanding the basic uh, you know, um, machinery of, of biology so that, so that we can uh, take care of ourselves just that much better. 
Uh, and we can cure diseases that we've never been able to cure before. Absolutely. And, and we're certainly on the cusp of that. Um, and, uh, but if you take a look at it from the other vantage point, if you understand biology, if you understand this network of small molecules and genes and environmental uh, influences, then you can disrupt that uh, not only for good, but perhaps for bad. And so what we're trying to do here is just to call attention to this tool and to, and, and to bring this to the attention of, of developing leaders and say, look, you have to take this into account when developing plans uh, for security and for operations. Uh, we have to understand what might happen out there if technology falls into the, uh, into the wrong hands of, of someone who is trying to do harm to others. And, and in our case, we're concerned about Americans. We're concerned about uh, and then um, the American military in, in particular. So that's really kind of why we were we uh, started this out. Again, we in in no way, shape, or form want to disparage or undermine the uh, the support that synthetic biology has in the community. Uh, we value it. We use it every day in our labs here at West Point, and 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 it's used across the uh, world in in labs and in uh, in industry and academia and government labs, all the way down even to high school labs. Uh, but I do think that we do need to understand that the bar has been lowered in terms of being able to produce something um, that uh, that other people haven't thought of, and if that something happens to be uh, perhaps negative in uh, in in nature, well, we need to be prepared for that. And 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 what is what is the risk here? What is the threat? What is it that that you're concerned about? What we're concerned about is the uh, production of uh, either small molecules of or gene products that perhaps uh, could be uh, used in a uh, in a uh, in a way that is. A negative influence on uh, on someone's health. We have, um, you know, we honestly, whatever you can think of, whatever you can um, consider in your mind, is probably capable of of being produced out there in um, in the synthetic biology. And so, what we're really so we're talking we're talking about a bioweapon here, right? We are talking about bioweapons. And so, yeah, yeah. And again, whether you talk about a material or something that is happens to be infectious, yeah, that's just different levels of threat, honestly. And then um, can you talk about the concept of binary weapons and why that's important in the context of, of what it is we're talking about here? Absolutely. So if you were able to take two different uh, chemicals, each of them uh, inert, very stable, but then when you mix them, uh, they become uh, you know, a robust uh, explosive, that would be considered a binary weapon. And so you need both co- uh, components in order to uh, have that weapon. And so and so biology could be the same thing. So if I had perhaps, well, let's use generic terms here. I'll, I'll say protein X, and that happens to be a, a, a poison. I could cut that in half in two different segments and have a, a gene product in, in one organism and a gene product in another. And I could produce a considerable amount of each one of those subcomponents to the poison. And then somehow mix these two together and and develop that uh, active uh, um, uh, poison for nefarious purpose. Likewise, what I could do is if the these two gene products happen to be housed in uh, in um, prokaryotes and bacteria, I could mix these together. And if they were uh, um, if in under favorable conditions, they could uh, exchange genetic material, and the product could be one single organism that is producing an intact part of that intact product. So you have both of those halves that can come together and, uh, and uh, form that, uh, that particular poison. 
So when we talk about a binary weapon, most people think about it in terms of uh, you know chemical or mechanical means. Right. But, but the analogy holds when you talk about um, biological um, macromolecules. You know what I'm thinking is the this is the this is the biological equivalent of Al Qaeda trying to bring on to those ten to fifteen aircraft flying from Heathrow chemicals, right? That were inert, separate, but when you put them on the plane and 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 mix them together, all of a sudden they became an explosive. Absolutely, and you know, again, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, science goes hand in hand with um, creativity and curiosity, and so really, it comes down to someone having, uh, with nefarious purpose, having creativity mixed in with some scientific uh, capability that allows them then to uh, produce something that, that's, that is going to be of uh, significant concern. So Ken, what's, the, what's kind of the range of risk here, you know, from the, the kind of least dangerous bioweapon to, to the most dangerous bioweapon in terms of what synthetic biology could produce? Right. So, I mean, part of this is fear. And, uh, and then part of it is, you know, say the, uh, the physical uh, infectivity that a substance might have or an organism uh, might have, an entity. And, and, and I use those terms very broadly because um, it's, it's arguable whether uh, one wants to call virus uh, alive uh, because it doesn't in and of itself have the uh, uh, machinery required for uh, self-replication. It requires the host uh, right. uh, to hijack and, uh, and, and replicate itself. Um, but uh, ignoring that distinction... Um, something that, of course, is going to uh, infect and is going to affect, but perhaps have that very careful balance uh, in between lethality and uh, infectivity across a particular population. If something was so uh, incredibly um, deadly that it's going to uh, hamstring itself in terms mm. of being able to pass that on to the next host, um, then that's going to tend to die out faster than something that has that careful balance in between there. And that something is more than likely a virus, uh, and it could be an engineered virus, uh, but there certainly can be um, uh, microbes, so living systems, small individual cells uh, that uh, produce uh, toxins. You know, whether you t think about something that's uh, fairly endemic across you know, humankind, uh, something like E. coli, without having that one genetic switch that'll, that'll change it into something that's, uh, that's virulent. That's one case there. Uh, but you can certainly think about something that is uh, genetically engineered um, like a virus. And look, we use this for good. So knowing that we use this for good, it can be used for bad. And the, and the classic example here is in, the, I think it was 2011, Dutch scientists uh, wanted to uh, uh, create a, uh, a virus and, and, and see what um, mutations were required in order to make that much more um, aerosolizable. And so mm. uh, they did this um, and they were frightened that it took so few mutations in order to make something that was very dangerous into something that was incredibly deadly. And there was a large public outcry. People came back and said, you know, you, sh you should not even publish this. And so there was a lot of ethical considerations that went into uh, the sharing of those data and the uh, publication of that particular work. And that really wasn't even synthetic biology uh, right there. But the lessons learned from that certainly mm. are. So they used natural selection in, in the context of the lab in order to generate that suite of five mutations. But now that that's known, that information then can be used uh, by people, myself, yourself, whomever, uh, to uh, engineer a particular um, uh, protein, 
uh, and, you know, in the context of DNA uh, and have that produced by any sort of any different uh, company, uh, the suite of uh, DNA synthesis companies out there. Some of them are American, but many of them are outside the continental United States. Um, So really, it's that information uh, that allows us and empowers uh, someone with nefarious purpose to use synthetic biology for their ends. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Ken Wickheiser. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So Ken, in the paper, you and your co-authors give some examples of where this has already been done. And let me ask you just to describe very briefly for our listeners, a couple of those, because I think they're instructive. Um, The first was work done in 2002, I believe, by scientists at the State University of New York at Stony Brook on the polio virus. Talk about that. So it's always been um, a a goal for someone to uh, build a, uh, a genome from scratch. And so then the question is, you know, using, you know, state of the art chemical uh, synthesis tools, can you construct something that is functional? And, uh, and so that is really where um, that effort was born out of. Um, and so, you know, that in, in and of itself spawned um, several other efforts that eventually led up to kind of the idea that could you actually create a living cell, you know, from scratch? And that in and of itself goes hand in hand with what do you actually need? Because what, what, what we really need to understand is, is what is actually needed for a living system? What can you throw away? Take out of this uh, um, car every little bit that you don't mm. actually need to make that car run. So if you mm. don't need the side view mirrors, get it out of there. If you don't need this, uh, the seat warmers, get it out of there and whatnot. And just give me the, the very minimal system that I need for that car to, uh, to actually function. And that's what has been a major goal in, uh, in synthetic biology uh, efforts um, you know, ac- across the uh, globe, because once you have that kind of minimal structure, that minimal scaffold, that biological scaffold, you can then add in a very, um, you know, what, whatever you want, and it's less of a load. Um, so you and I, we're, we're uh, going out for a run. If you, if you add a, a large backpack onto yourself, you're going to slow yourself down. It's going to be much more exerting. Well, the same thing happens when you engineer a uh, a small microbe. It, you you lower this, you you increase the metabolic load, and you, and you and you slow it down, and you and you make it struggle. But if you can get rid of all the the non essential requirements, then when you actually load it up with that um, you know new uh, system, whatever again for good or for bad, you're going to have a a chassis, a a biological system that that's not going to be loaded down as much as a natural one. Um, so so that, that's been kind of the progression is going from construct, construct of a virus to construct of an actual living system, a living cell. You know, another piece that uh, we really wanted to bring up here is, is again, for on, on the good part, we have these amazing um, contests like the uh, International Genetically Engineered Machine Contest, born out of MIT, 
um, and uh, and uh, you have this incredibly rich international uh, group of uh, of uh, young men and women. Primarily, it was uh, it was college students. You know, that, that's how they kind of envisioned this. And so there were some undergraduates and some graduate students that kind of got into it. But recently, they've kind of lowered the, uh, the bar of, of entry because so many young high school students are really interested in this kind of work. And I'm just taking a look right now at the iGEM uh, team list. Uh, in 2019, there was 360 teams from across the world. About uh, uh, pushing 50% of them came from Asia. About 20% were from North America. But I'm just taking a look at the uh, at the high school here. Um, there was about looks like about uh, one third, uh, one quarter to one third of the uh, of the teams were at the high school level. So these are young men and women in in high school who are who are engaging in synthetic biology projects, and about 65 percent of them are are from Asia, and the, and predominantly they're from China. So. Again, you know, the great thing about uh, synthetic biology is that there are no borders. Uh, but then again, you know, that, then that apply that to the, to the context of, uh, of threat and, and, and apply that to the context of, of uh, force protection amongst uh, the American population and, and, the, uh, and the DOD. And, uh, and, and there might be something here of, of, of concern. Yeah, and, and, and then no borders become a bad thing, right? So it, it, it's, this, it's this interesting dichotomy. So Ken, you just raised an issue that really caught my attention when I read it, because when people used to ask me about this threat, I would say, yes, terrorist groups have shown interest, but doing this is very, very difficult. And the, one of the things that really jumped out to me in your, in your article is that your point that this is getting easier and easier. And let me read maybe a couple of sentences that, that I highlighted when I read it the first time. Um, and then get you to react to them. The first is, today, the sophistication of high school and undergraduate student research projects has matched that of many highly trained personnel who were working in advanced laboratories less than a decade ago. That's the first. And then, and then the second is, these synthetic bio tools are lowering the education, training, cost, time, and equipment threshold required to modify and employ pathogenic organisms as biological weapons. Talk about the extent to which this is getting easier and obviously why that's important. Sure. I mean, so let's take a look at the iGEM um, organization. And once again, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I've participated in iGEM uh, for many years. And, uh, you know, they have a biosafety and uh, biosecurity uh, um, uh, committee. Uh, and they're very much attuned uh, to the uh, potential uh, misuse. Uh, but uh, for us, say, outside of the context of a competition and, and just going into the uh, general population and going into perhaps non-state actors, uh, who have uh, you know ill intent toward the United States? You think about this, and and you say, if high school students can do this across Asia, across Europe, across the United States, even if they have an advisor, well, that then you take that threat um, kind of scenario and apply that to something chemical, apply that to something say nuclear, and and it just doesn't match up. You're not going to have high school students, you know, making a next generation on you know nuclear weapon. That's 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 not going to happen. Uh, but here, uh, with and one of the amazing things about science is, you know, we, we're all about sharing information. We're all about 
publishing. We're all about, you know, planting your flag and, 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 and generating bragging rights about these uh, great advances that we make in, uh, in uh, both uh, basic science and, and, uh, and applied science. Uh, but that also then provides a great recipe, a great uh, set of instructions for that next person. And that next person can certainly be a, uh, a young individual that does not have decades of experience in laboratories. And, and he or she can essentially do garage level science that in the past uh, would have taken a lot of very talented people a long time in, in sophisticated labs. Going back to our polio example, you know, and, and talking about, you know, how long did that take uh, these experts in the uh, Stony Brook lab? You know, how many years was that? How many you know, millions of dollars was spent on that? Whereas when you talk about, say, something like a, a, a young team of, uh, of students in one of these, um, uh, one of these iGEM teams, you know, that this is on the thousands of dollars um, on scale. And so if, if, if they need, say, you know, something underneath $10,000 worth of materials, that's that's highly attainable for a lot of people and uh, and and these materials then that we're talking about really comes down to synthetic dna dna that has been produced uh, by chemically um, synthesizing them in a in a facility and these facilities are all across the world they're all across the united states they're all across europe but they're all across asia as well and honestly when i have a gene synthesized or when i have a, a plasmid, which is a small circular chunk of DNA that has many different or several, several to many different genes uh, embedded within it. If I have that synthesized and I want to pay someone three thousand dollars to do that, it will probably be subcontract out to China. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the materials are coming from. So when you talk about the the uh, the uh, sharing of materials, there's high levels of access um, f- for anybody throughout the world. This is not just something that is available to American students or, or students in, and, uh, and uh, postdocs and, and professors in American universities. This is available worldwide. And so really, again, you, you say there, there are no boundaries when it comes to the information. There are no boundaries when it comes to science. And there's certainly no boundaries when it comes to scientific expertise and interest, because there is such an enormous uh, level of interest coming out of uh, out of Asia and particularly uh, China uh, that uh, that again it, it's it's something to can be to, to consider uh, when when thinking about where synthetic biology could go not only for the good but potentially for the bad. So Ken, in your article, you and your co-authors push back on those who say that making bioweapons is you know is much too difficult for a non-professional, right? For a non-highly trained person. And you do that by using what I think are two terrific metaphors. One's about baking, I think, and one's about computing. Can you share one or both of those? Because I think they're pretty powerful. Sure, absolutely. Um, And let me just uh, say, uh, you know, again, 20 years ago, I would have said, yes, they're absolutely right. The, the, The bar is way too high. 10 years ago? Yeah, sure. It's, it's, it's a little bit lower, but, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be a tough ask. But today, it's just really not. And so, again, if you go back to uh, some of the examples we used in the uh, in the paper, you know, let's think about our uh, uh, you know home PC uh, example. You know, when I was young, uh, I I vividly remember uh, my very first Apple. You know, seeing that at a at a college, I was there on a on a day camp. It was basically like almost like a museum where where I was looking behind the glass. Not allowed to touch this. This was a computer. I was not allowed to touch that. 
Um, but you know, today, look where we've gone. You know, along with Moore's law, um, this is a, this is just exploded in terms of technology, where people now have the ability to customize uh, their their entire uh, home and have that uh, controlled. Uh, you know, by a cell phone. And and so again, right here, you have you have that Moore's law that has been allowing us via the increased computational power to do so many amazing things that we just couldn't have dreamed of, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Well, biology and our, and our understanding of biology has followed a similar path. There's been an absolute explosion in our understanding of what a gene is, how to control a gene, how to get these genes from in, in, from one context and put them in, 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 into another. And really it comes down to being able to um, design this online. Back in when I started uh, graduate school, I'll date myself, a Silicon Graphics um, you know, terminal, uh, you can do this on your phone. And mm -hmm. so you can do genetic engineering right from your phone, right from an iPad or some other tablet. And you can, with a credit card, purchase that DNA on the spot. And really what it comes down to is at the end of the uh, purchasing process, there's a little uh, form to sign and say, is this, you know, uh, is this a poison? No. Yes or no. Uh, is this, you know, essentially for, uh, um, uh, is this going to, can this in infect or impact human health? Yes or no. So it really comes down to you um, as the, uh, as the purchaser uh, being honest. And so again, with the, uh, with the analogy over here to uh, um, uh, our, our home theater, and our, and, our, and our home electronics suite, we have this incredible capability in, in biology, um, yet the controls haven't caught up to that yet. Whereas perhaps uh, controls in uh, uh, electronic means uh, have, I would, I would uh, tend to argue. And, and that's just because I think it's, it's perhaps to the uh, uh, regular um, uh, non-scientist, a lot more understandable about the, uh, the capabilities and the limitations of electronics compared to that of the of uh, biology. And in terms of your concerns about this, it sounds like it's primarily non-state actors, terrorist groups, etc., rather than states. Is that is that fair to say or not? That's absolutely fair to say. And at, at the end of the day, you know, uh, both uh, both Russia and uh, China have have incredibly robust uh, scientific programs, um, and the United States has taken steps. Um, you know, after the uh, um, dismantling and uh, falling of the uh, Soviet Union to uh, provide scientists, you know, from the former Soviet Union opportunities to engage in um, uh, science, uh, you know, for the benefit of uh, mankind uh, by, by setting up laboratories in, uh, in countries like Georgia. But our concern here is really, again, the lowering of that bar and the uh, allowing now in technologically speaking and materials availability speaking, um, the ability for an untrained group of a small group of people uh, to develop something that uh, might uh, impact uh, negatively uh, human health. So, Ken, let me. We're coming to an end here. We've got about four minutes left. Um, let me read two more sentences from your article that I want to share with my listeners, and then I'll ask you um, one final question. So, the first sentence is As molecular engineering techniques of the synthetic biologists become more robust and widespread, the probability of encountering one or more of these threats is approaching certainty. So that's one sentence. The second is, and I will paraphrase this one here, the change to the threat landscape created by these techniques is rivaled only by the development of the atomic bomb. 
So those are two pretty significant sentences. And the question I want to ask you is, so what do we do about this, right? What's the right policy response? What do we do to defend ourselves? What do we do to make sure that we mitigate this risk? And I know that's a tough question. No, it's a great point. Um, and so again, I go back to say the iGEM uh, field, and 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 so they're very much interested in biosecurity and and infusing, uh, you know, the the thought of biosecurity in these young budding scientists. Again, whether they be Americans or or uh, f- uh, folks from foreign countries, but we also have here in the United States, you know, several uh, organizations uh, dedicated to uh, biosecurity, including the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Um, and their chemical biological defense um, uh, division. Uh, the entire research there is uh, is uh, led up by uh, uh, Dr. Ronald Han, and he has a, an amazing portfolio uh, there where they are they are very dedicated, um, you know, to addressing this field. Uh, there's of course BARDA, uh, and there's DARPA. DARPA has several different programs out there that are addressing the potential threat of uh, synthetic biology, uh, whether it be in, gen- in normal genetic engineering. Um, here or the uh, whole CRISPR-Cas um, nine effort that uh, that has been uh, that has really kind of exploded the field over the past uh, several years, um, and 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 so we do have organizations, uh, whether they be private nonprofits or governmental organizations, that are addressing this, and I think it's probably incumbent upon us to really kind of weave this into the educational uh, experience of young people. And that's whether we're talking about um, budding scientists um, or people who are interested in in, in ethics or people who are interested in, say, economics. We need people to understand the, uh, the benefits of synthetic biology and the potential threats out there so that we can develop, uh, you know, common sense policies that will allow the uh, science to uh, progress, that will allow us to benefit uh, from the development of the science, but at the same time, uh, assuring our safety. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your service to our country, which continues to this very day in, in educating the young women and young men who will lead the United States Army in the future. Thank you very much. Michael, thank you so much. I've been honored and I appreciate it. That was Ken Wickheiser. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.